you have your Bibles or Scripture Journal, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 20. Gospel of Luke and chapter 20 as we continue our series through uh, this rich gospel. We'll be in verses 9 through 26 in our time together this morning. Luke 20 and 9 through 26. If you got it, say I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 9 of chapter 20. Holy Spirit says, through a doctor named Luke, and he began to tell the people this parable, he being Jesus, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere and that they might catch him in something he had said so as to deliver him up to the authorities and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Many, many years ago, I came across a Washington Post article that caught my attention, written by a gentleman named Roberto Ferdman, and it's titled, The Strange Life of Q-Tips, The Most Bizarre Thing People Buy. Now, some of you may remember that article from many years ago, uh, and also may remember subsequently coming up to me and telling me that you will continue to happily use Q-tips no matter what I or any article says as you went home and jammed them right into your ear canal, tickling your brain. But it's one of my favorites, and I think there's an important lesson there uh, in these little cotton swabs attached to tiny sticks that the author of the article reminds us. Let me read you what he says. He says, years ago, my mother complained about a terrible earache. The pain was unbearable. It wouldn't go away for a week. She walked around with a dilapidating ringing in her head. 
Eventually, she recalled to me the other day that discomfort led her to a doctor who carefully pushed an otoscope into her ear. Within seconds, he pulled it out and looked her in the face and said, have you been putting Q-tips in your ears? He asked with a disapproving tone. Like so many others, my mother had been using Q-tips to clean her ears. Do you guys do that? But in doing so, she also was also messing with a natural process. Her ear was hurting because she had an ear infection, and there's a decent chance her routinely using Q-tips had helped cause it. Promise me something, the doctor told her. Promise me you'll never put another Q-tip inside of your ear. Q-tips, he says, are one of the most perplexing things for sale in America. Plenty of consumer products are widely used in ways other than their core function, books for leveling tables, newspapers for keeping fires aflame, seltzer for removing stain, coffee tables for resting legs. But these cotton swabs are distinct. Q-tips are one of the only, if not the only, major consumer products whose main purpose is precisely the one the manufacturer explicitly warns against. The little padded sticks have long been marketed as household staples, pitched for various kinds of beauty upkeep, arts, crafts, home cleaning, baby care. And for years, they have carried an explicit caution. Every box of Q-tips comes with this caveat. You go home and look at your box of Q-tips, and it says this. Do not insert inside the ear canal. But everyone, especially those who look into people's ear for a living, know that many, if not most, flat out ignore the warning. So why do we continue to ignore the warnings? Why use them in a way that the manufacturer explicitly tells us not to? Well, he explains, we continue to twist Q-tips in our ears thanks to a simple truth. It feels great. Our ears are filled with sensitive nerve endings, which send signals to various other parts of our bodies. Tickling their insides triggers all sorts of visceral pleasures. But there's more. Using Q-tips leads to what dermatologists refer to as the itch-scratch cycle, which is a self-perpetuating addiction. The more you use them, the more your ears itch, and the more your ears itch, the more you use them. Another problem with this is not only that we are warned by the makers of Q-tips not to use them in the way that we typically do, but because our bodies produce earwax to protect our ear canals. So we use them to remove something that may actually help us. Warnings exist for a reason, yes? You don't want to admit that because you've been shoving Q-tips into your ears. So why do we often ignore them? Warnings are for our good. So why do we oftentimes think we know better than the cautions that we receive? Now, Q-tips might be a silly example, but they illustrate an important point in what seems to be a human problem. Ignoring admonitions, followed by surprise at the consequences that often follow from our disregard or indifference. In the first part of the text that's before us this morning, there is a parable. And it's a parable Jesus tells that, in essence, covers the history of Israel from its inception to his ministry. And the tale is, in many ways, a tragic one that is full of warnings and long-suffering by God as this privileged people rebuff the grace of God over and over again and ignore the warnings. Now, in the second scene in our text, we see leaders once more trying to trap Jesus with a question that they hope will cause him to answer wrongly in order for the crowd to turn on him. But these two scenes, which seem unrelated, actually play off one another. So this is what we'll do. In our time together, we're going to consider four points that will come in the form of four questions. Okay, And these four questions are implicit in these two sections. 
They're questions that Jesus' first hearers and readers would have done well to ask honestly of themselves, and they're questions that we would do well to ask ourselves. So they're points, but they're questions that we should ask ourselves. Here's the first one first. Question one. What do you do with the privileges that you have? Question one. What do you do with the privileges that you have? So following the religious leaders attempting to trap Jesus and then failing in 20 verses 1 through 8 that we looked at last week, Jesus takes the opportunity in their presence to tell a parable which actually answers their question from verse 2. The parable is this. Let me summarize it for you. There's a vineyard owner. This vineyard is owned by a man who traveled away, and he had some tenants who were supposed to cultivate the land and bear fruit that could subsequently be given to the vineyard owner, right? The tenants began to presume, though, ownership. This is the problem. And when the real owner sent uh, a servant to go and collect some fruit, the tenants instead beat him, and they sent him away with nothing. The owner sent another servant who was also beaten and treated severely. He sent a third. They also beat him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So the owner figured that if he sent his beloved son as his representative, the tenants would respect someone with more stature and rank. Maybe the tenants didn't respect the servants because they were, well, servants. So surely they would respect the son. Instead, what happens? The tenants killed the son, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So the question Jesus asks is, what should the vineyard owner do? Uh, This is a question Jesus answers himself immediately, doesn't he? Now, the way in which the people respond to the story in verse 16 and the way the religious leaders react in verse 19 shows us that they know exactly what the parable is about. This is not veiled from them. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know that the vineyard is Israel. They know the tenants are the people and especially the religious leaders now and in Israel's history. They know the servants are the prophets. And they know the son is who? It's Jesus. Why do they know that? Because a frequent Old Testament picture of Israel, and especially the temple, was of a vineyard. A frequent picture of the prophets was of servants. They know their Bibles enough to know that. They also know their Bibles enough to know the history of their nation and how it treated the prophets. And like Jesus drew off Jeremiah 7 in the cleansing of the temple, here he's actually, you could write this down, I'm going to read it to you in a second, Isaiah 5. He's drawn off Isaiah 5. And this is what it says. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it out with stones, planted a choice vine. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out of wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. This is clearly a picture God is drawing of Israel being a vineyard. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done yet? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see the parallels, right? They knew what Jesus was drawing off of, this passage in Isaiah, where it's explicitly told that Israel is a vineyard. 
Israel was privileged in the way that they were chosen by God to be a conduit by which the world would be reached with the message of a loving and rescuing God. Israel was rescued by God out of Egypt and told by God, it was not because of anything in you that I chose you, but I chose you because I love you and I love you because I love you. Now this is what you should do in light of my grace. Bear my name to the nations. Spread my rule throughout the world. And God dwelt with them first in pillar and in cloud, then in the tabernacle, then in the temple. They had the very presence of God in their midst. And again, it wasn't because of anything special about them, but because of God's own love, grace, and plan. Now, on top of all of that, God had told them how to relate to him, how to worship him, how to treat one another. And he gave them the scriptures, which he himself breathed out. This is a privileged people indeed, yes? And what did they do with that privilege? Did they live? You guys know your Old Testaments. Did they live ethical lives in light of the grace of God? Did they take the message of Yahweh to the nations? Did they worship God properly? Did they do justice, love neighbor, care for the poor, the orphan, the sojourner, and the widow? What's the answer? No, they instead, they took their privilege and they had misused it over and over again. They spent their privilege on themselves. But God is kind, yes. He is long-suffering, as we read earlier. He is patient, abounding in covenant love. So he gave them chance after chance. He sent them prophet after prophet. And what did they do? They not only didn't listen to them, but they oftentimes killed them. What were they supposed to do with the privilege they have? They were supposed to bear fruit, to offer to the Lord as a vineyard. Did they bear fruit? They did, but the bad kind. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? Klein Snodgrass, who has an awesome name, said this, The parable asserts and offers the privilege of living in covenant relation with God. But privilege always brings with it responsibility. Apart from living responsibly in obedience to God, the privilege cannot be retained. No community, Christian or otherwise, may presume that gifts like grace and election are permanent possessions. Rather, they are opportunities for life in response to God. The kingdom comes with limitless grace, but also with limitless demand. With privilege comes responsibility, but they turned it into presumption. Grace is a gift to be used, not hoarded. What did almost every iteration of Spider-Man's Uncle Ben say to him? <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. In other words, privilege comes with more responsibility, not less. Grace isn't given as an excuse for sloth. It is given to be leveraged for their good and God's glory. Israel's privilege turned to presumption. The grace of God given to them turned to a cheap unrecognizable grace. They thought they could live any way they wanted to. And that didn't really matter. After all, they had God in their midst. They were part of the covenant community. But their privilege turned into this kind of ethnic nationalism of the type that we see in Jonah's response to the call to reach outside of Israel with the call to worship and repent the, and worship the one true God. They presumed upon grace. And what this parable from Jesus is telling them is that grace comes with responsibility. And if that responsibility is abdicated, so will their privileged state. 
It shows that God is long-suffering, but his patience doesn't last forever. It shows that judgment follows for those who persistently reject God's offer of redemption. And what about you, my friend? Are we privileged? I'm not sure that there, in the history of the world that there is a more privileged nation than ours. What other nation has had access to the gospel like we have? You know, there are over 7,000 people groups. That's about 3.2 billion people in the world who don't know someone who knows someone who is a Christian. They haven't even heard the name Jesus, but we have the access to the gospel in rich supply, don't we? Yes? There are nations that don't have one book of the Bible in their native tongue, and we have multiple copies of the whole Bible on our shelves. There are Christians around the world that need to travel hours to get to the closest church. Some of them have to meet in secret, knowing that if they get caught by the state authorities, they'll be imprisoned or even killed. Whereas we have so many churches that if you throw a rock in the air in any direction, you're liable to hit one. And what do we do with that privilege? What do we do with the fact that we can worship without fear? That we can share the gospel without threat of arrest? That we can read the Bible whenever we want in multiple translations? That we can go to church every Sunday and hear the word read, sung, and proclaimed? What do we do with that? I think we know the answer. What has happened in a country like ours where we are free to read, worship, and gather? The trends are, do you realize this? That we are reading the Bible less than ever, praying less than ever, and going to church less than ever. Why? Because we're also simultaneously overstuffed with things we'd rather do, right? There are more ways than ever to consume entertainment, more events to attend, more extracurricular activities to give our kids away to, more places to go as it's easier to travel than ever before. And in all that hustle and bustle and all that good stuff we do, attending to the things of God gets pushed further and further down our list of priorities. Instead of talking to our unbelieving friends and families about the gospel, we'd rather talk about weather or sports, or some other vapid trifle. Nice weather we're having, isn't it? I hear it's going to rain. Man, we need it. Did you see the game last night? Those Bulldogs are something else, aren't they? Aren't those teenagers playing that sport really good at that? Is this not what fills our conversations? And in all of this, God is asking, what are you doing with all that freedom that people in other countries would kill for? What are you doing with all these privileges to be able to go worship the one true God without fear? What are you doing with the privilege to wake up and grab one of six copies of the Bible off your shelf or pull up a hundred different translations on your phone? Are we presuming upon grace? God is looking for fruit from privileged people, and is he seeing any? What does God see when he looks at American Christians? What's he seeing when he looks at American churches? Does he see people leveraging their privileged status or people wasting their lives on the trivial? Is he seeing a people who take advantage of their freedoms to pursue more obedience or less? 
is he's seeing a people who recognize how fortunate they are and look at the gospel of grace and the beauty of Christ and respond by doing the things he has called them to do? Or does he see people presuming upon his grace and using that as an excuse for sloth and indifference? David Platt ends his book, Radical, like this. You and I have an average of about 70 or 80 years on this earth. During these years, we are bombarded with the temporary. Make money, get stuff, be comfortable, live well, have fun. In the middle of all that, we get blinded to the eternal, but it's there. You and I stand on the porch of eternity. Both of us will soon stand before God to give an account for our stewardship of the time, the resources, the gift, and ultimately the gospel he's entrusted us with. When that day comes, I'm convinced, he says, we will not wish we had given ourselves more to living the American dream. We will not wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of the world. Instead, we will wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and languages will bow around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. You think he's right? My friend, what do you do with the privilege that you have? Israel wasted it. And they would pay for their presumption. What about you? Would you waste it? Well, since we have four questions, we must move on to our second one. Question two. Question two. Are you an owner or a tenant? Point two, question two. Are you an owner or a tenant? This, this relates directly to the first one, doesn't it? The major problem with the tenants in the parable is that they didn't see themselves as tenants. They thought of themselves as owners. The, the vineyard wasn't theirs, yet they acted as if it was. And they did everything they could to try to lay claim to the vineyard, even as it was owned by someone else. Israel's problem, and especially the religious leaders throughout her history, was that they fancied themselves owners rather than stewards. And since they did that, they had no fruit to offer God. All of it, the land, the temple, the way in which God was to be worshipped, the way that they were supposed to live, it was all God's. He was the vineyard owner. Yet what happened was Israel presumed ownership and thus lived however they wanted to. They were supposed to live by God's word and for God's profit. I mean, you see the servants in the parable come to the vineyard. Why does it say they came? To get fruit, right? To get the fruit that was yielded in the owner's land in order to take back to the owner. The fruit was the owner's. And it's the same, same with the fruit of good deeds and proper worship that Israel was to offer. It wasn't for them. It was so they could offer it to God. Yet their presumption of ownership caused them to live for their own gain. Do you see? So that when the Lord's prophets came, they had nothing to offer. And in fact, it was because the prophets demanded fruit and called them on their sin, that they reacted so violently, wasn't it? Well, it's far easier to be angry at the messenger than it is to be angry with your own heart and deeds when they are revealed to be off the mark, isn't it? If you look in your Bibles or Scripture journals, there's probably a heading over your verse, verse 9, that says the parable of the wicked tenants. Does it say that? Let me suggest another name for this parable. How about the parable of the greedy tenants? Of course they're wicked, they kill people. But what is their motivation? It's greed. 
the vineyard is not theirs. It was never meant to be theirs. It didn't belong to them, but in their greed, they have attempted to lay claim to it themselves. I remember I came across a story a while back. It's been a minute where an Airbnb property, you guys know Airbnb, right? In California, some renters of the property decide they just stay. You know, after their checkout day, they just, you know what? We like this. Let's just stay. You know Airbnb, right? It's a website where you can basically rent someone's house. <laughs> and it's pretty much the same price as a hotel, but you get a whole house. In this case, the man agreed to stay for 45 days. He paid 30 days in advance and just decided he didn't want to pay the rest. And then he just decided he also didn't want to leave the house. It wasn't his house at any point, was it? It belonged to someone else. He entered into an agreement. He was given the responsibility to care for the house while he was there, and he decided he liked it enough to claim it at his own, even though he had no legal right whatsoever to claim it. This is what Israel, and especially the religious leaders, were doing. The religious leaders were given responsibility to manage the temple and to lead the people well. They were given a mandate from God himself, but they failed. But they not just failed to manage the vineyard properly. They had arrogantly attempted to claim ownership as if the temple was theirs to do with what they want. Israel's problem historically had come from this fact. They acted as owners when they were merely stewards. And every time a servant comes to remind them that they are not owners, what happens? Progressively, they get angrier. Isn't that not what happens in this parable? They get angrier and angrier and angrier until the sun comes and they kill him. Tim Keller, he preached this parable many years ago, and he said, you know, the Bible teaches us that underneath all of our complaints and all of our unhappiness with our lives and under all of our discontentment and under all of our self-pity is an anger that we aren't in charge and that we know what's best for us and that somebody will not let us be in charge and we hate it. And Keller said the evidence is in the fact that we naturally hate God, shown by the fact that the one time in human history God became man and became vulnerable, we beat him, we mocked him, and we killed him. For all the problems that we have as humans, underneath them is the fact that we think we are owners when we are merely supposed to be stewards. Behind our anger at others, is our anger at God for not letting us be in charge for our lacking the control that we so richly think we deserve? What's the root of every sin dating back to our first parents? Is it not the casting off of God's rule because we think we should be him? Oh, we want to be God. Every sin, yes, is a declaration of this impulse because we're saying God's rules stink and ours are better. Am I wrong? Yeah, what lies behind our self-pity and our grumbles? Is it not that we believe we're owed better than we're getting? Wouldn't we order our lives and the universe so differently if we were in charge? Is, is not the reason that the self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar per year industry because we are drawn to the idea that we could be self-made people who are independent go-getters, who overcome the odds and take the bull by the horns? Don't we like the idea that we did it? That we like the idea of being in control of our lives and our destinies. And if we earned everything, do you see the logic? If we earn, think we earned everything we have through our sheer grit and determination 
then we thus ought to spend our lives and what we think we've earned on ourselves. It's our fruit, after all, right? We labored and harvested. We thus think we've earned the right to be owners rather than stewards. Do you see? You might remember a few weeks ago, I used an illustration I borrowed from C.S. Lewis where uh, he asked if Shakespeare and Hamlet were ever to meet, how could that happen? You guys remember that? Hamlet, of course, is a character in a play by the same name, written by William Shakespeare. And uh, so how could his character meet the creator and writer of the play? And we said Shakespeare would have to write himself, right? He'd have to write himself into the play, and he'd have to arrange the meeting. Hamlet couldn't initiate anything. In the person of Jesus, of course, God has actually done this, right? He's written himself into our story. But now let's press in the picture a little bit. What if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play? And Hamlet didn't like the idea that there was a writer of his story. What if he didn't like the idea that he had a creator who was in control and that he would rather be in charge, so then he tried to kill Shakespeare in order to be in charge of his story? That seems silly, but this is what happened in the incarnation of Christ. He has written himself into our story And we've decided that we do not like the idea that someone else, even our creator, should be in charge. And that's why in 33 AD, we killed them. And it's why we continue to revolt against him by fancying ourselves as fitter gods than he is. James Edwards said it this way. Since the beginning of creation, humanity has sought to be like God without obeying God, to become lords of Eden rather than stewards of it. What is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God so that humanity can rule supreme? We talked at length about our rejection of authority last week, yes? But it's one thing, right, to reject the authority of humans put in positions over us. It's quite another to reject the authority of God. But that's what we do, isn't it? Because We don't want to be mere tenants. We must be owners. And if there is to be a profit from our lives, it should go to us and not to him. My friend, do you live your life as if you're the owner? Or do you live your life as if you're a steward? Do you live under the authority of God? Or do you think you ought to be the owner and manager and authority of your life? This takes us back to the theology of Scripture, doesn't it? What place does the Word have in your life? We talk about this some. When the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed, it comforts and convicts. It pierces and it binds up. But the choice we must all make when it is unleashed is whether it will do its work in our heart or not. Alistair Begg said, when the Word is unleashed, you're either impressed and converted or you're irritated and hardened. Why? Because the word is telling us about our sin. It's telling us about our inability. It's telling us about our helplessness. It's telling us about our rebellion. It's telling us of our need for outside rescue. I think Billy Sunday said the reason you don't like the Bible, you old sinner, is because it knows all about you. And this is hardly good news in self-help, self-made, relativistic society like ours with hearts that would rather be God than submit to him. The word properly heeded will tell us how we ought to live in light of the gospel. And that is constantly contradicting our selfishness and our self-centeredness and our desire to profit from our lives rather than profit the kingdom. So when the word comes and acts as a mirror, 
We could either allow it to do its work and submit to it, or we could continue to rebel and harden our hearts against it. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. You could be hearers of the gospel without it having some effect upon you. The effect of the gospel is always present in some degree. It is a savor of life unto life, or else a savor of death unto death to all who hear it. This is evident in Israel's history, and it's evident in this parable. When the prophets come to call them to bear fruit, to remind them who the owner actually was, they responded how? In violent anger. Lashing out against those proclaiming the word, even to the point of killing the owner's beloved son. And I'll say, I've said it before, and I must repeat it. Jesus is someone who elicits a strong response. Being indifferent to Jesus is not an option. People think they could be indifferent to Jesus. They think they could say he's a neat guy who taught some neat things. He really just wanted us to be nice to one another and try really hard to be a good person. As long as he had good motive, then that's really all he wanted. There are people around us who think Jesus is someone that could be kept on the margins of their lives. Quite frankly, he evokes no strong emotion one way or other. That is impossible. People who encounter Jesus in the pages of Scripture don't react with indifference, do they? They either want to give up everything for him or they want to kill him. If Jesus were as domesticated in reality as Americans want to make him, he never would have been killed. How can it be that the same Jesus that made the religious leaders turn so violent into savages bent on death makes us yawn and shrug. Dorothy Sayers said that if the story of the gospel is boring to us, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? She said, the people who hanged Christ, never to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently, she said, declawed the lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. But a choice has to be made. You say so? If you aren't reacting, listen, okay? If you aren't reacting by falling on the ground and making him the owner of your life, then you are reacting against him as the one who is in the way of you doing what you want. You crown him or you kill him. There's no indifference possible when it comes to Jesus. To put him on the fringes and peripheries is actually to rebel against him. Don't you see? This brings us to our third question, question three. What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? This passage is soaked in the grace of God. The people have been reminded that God has given them opportunity after opportunity, and they rejected it. Now, it's one thing, right, to reject the servants. It's one thing to reject the prophets. But What do they do when the owner said, I will send my beloved son? How will they respond when God says, I will send my son whom I love? 
You guys think about the grace in that? They mistreated servant after servant in brutal and shameful ways. How would you respond to that? You know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't send your child, would you? I wouldn't. I wouldn't see how they treated my servants and say, I'm going to send my son whom I love. There's no way. Would you send your child after all that? I think we could agree with our friend Martin Luther when he said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's what I would have done, but that's not what God did. God sent, you're you're supposed to feel the force of this image. God sent his son, his what? Only son, whom he loved to come and offer mercy and grace and free forgiveness to people who tried to be God. You see the scandal? People who have gotten themselves into their own messes and cried foul. Who have disobeyed and wasted their privilege. Who had made their own rules and tried to take God off his throne. It's these people God sent his son to die for. Does that knock you on your behind or not? But we're yawning at this gospel. We're seeing that we are so sinful that we couldn't save ourselves in a thousand lifetimes and we're so fallen that we constantly make messes of our lives and we still think, you know what? I should be in charge of my life. We, we, we have had it so backwards that we look at Jesus, talk about people who reject the cornerstone will be crushed by it. And after reading all this history unfold in this parable and think, well, that seems harsh. Do we know who we are? Do we know who God is? Did he need to send his son at all? Tell me. Did he even need to keep sending prophets? He could have crushed them at the very first rejection or even before that. But he is full of grace and mercy. So in light of who we are, in light of who he is, in light of what we truly deserve, which is the wages of sin, Will we reject him or will we be crushed by him? Isn't that the choice he gives us? Do you see? In case anyone was confused about the meaning of this parable, Jesus offers the interpretive key by citing Psalm 118.22. The same psalm, by the way, that Jesus cited in his lament over Jerusalem in chapter 13. Jesus is the cornerstone. And the religious leaders rejected him, so they will be crushed by him. But that was their choice. What's yours? This is a warning. You build your life on Jesus or you get crushed by him in the end. We don't like black and whites. Jesus does and he gives it. Israel couldn't say it wasn't warned. And neither can we. Said Edwards once more, the Son of God, like a cornerstone, is either received as the foundation stone of the edifice or it falls upon those who reject it with crushing force. The Son is either Savior or Judge of Israel and humanity. Friend, let me ask, what bears the weight of your life? What informs how you live? On what do you rely on to get your meaning and your purpose and your value? On what is your identity based? 
what informs how you build everything else in your life? You guys realize how important a solid foundation is, right? Uh, you know, the cornerstone is the most important part. Right? The literal cornerstone was so important to the temple. In fact, it bore most of the weight of the building, and it tied all the walls firmly together. You know, there's a cornerstone was discovered under the temple mount. It's 55 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet wide, and weighs 570 tons. And without it, everything would collapse. You know, the temple was, really was destroyed in 70 AD like Jesus said it would. But guess what? The cornerstone is still there. You know, how important is the cornerstone for a foundation of a building? You know, when I moved to Texas, I noticed that every, every house that was older than a few years had cracks either in the walls or the ceilings or both, or some of the doors, you couldn't close them anymore. Well, it turns out that the reason for that is that the strange dirt of North Texas causes the foundation to shift. And when it does that, it messes up all kinds of stuff in the house. It doesn't matter how nice a house is, right? <laughs> or how nice the furniture is, or how expensive it was to build. If the foundation was bad, the whole thing is a mess. This is true of life as well. If we aren't building our lives on a solid foundation, it doesn't matter what you do, or how nice your life is to others, or how put together you seem, or how expensive your toys are, or how much time you spend on your hobbies, or how put together your family is, or what accomplishments you could gather for yourself. Without the foundation of Christ. Not only will everything cave in when life is hard, but you will be left with nothing in the end of your life when you stand naked and empty-handed before Jesus. The choice is to embrace Jesus as cornerstone and foundation of your life and live your life in light of him and his lordship or reject him and build on some other foundation, continue to be your own lord and authority, and then be crushed by him in the end. What do you choose? It has to be one of those. You either embrace the son or you try to kill him and cast him out. He is the cornerstone of your life that informs everything else or you trip over him and will be crushed by him at the end. What will you choose? My friend, do not presume upon grace. That's what Israel did. Don't presume upon privilege. That's where they failed. Don't presume you have all the time in the world to put off deciding like they did. To not choose is to choose, and it's to choose to reject the son, the cornerstone, the king. Don't be like them. I beg you, don't be like them. Embrace the son. But there's one more question, isn't there? And it ties everything together. Fourth and finally, a fourth and final question is, what do we owe God? What do we owe God? The scene shifts to, describes, to the scribes and the chief priests becoming even more cowardly, right? And thinking they're incredibly clever by sending some spies to try to trap Jesus since they couldn't do it themselves earlier in the chapter. The word translated, just some gee whiz, as spies literally means something like hired to lie in wait. Picturing someone lurking about, waiting for a chance to destroy. Jesus' parable, it set the religious leaders uh, off. They knew it was about them. And instead of reacting with repentance and submission to Jesus, they react with violence and they want him dead. So they send some jabronis to Jesus with a question, right? See, they learned. Did you notice? 
from Jesus' tactic earlier of asking either-or questions that have no good answers, didn't they? And they try it on him. They come up, they begin with flattery. We know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God's truth, right? They didn't believe any of this. They're just trying to flatter him. This is like how we might think we're clever by giving someone a compliment followed by a criticism, right? Or a critique, uh, even, uh, or offering a backhanded compliment. If these guys were from the South, they'd tell Jesus, bless your heart, right? But they ask a question that's meant to not have a good answer. Do you see? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus said no, then he would be denying Rome's authority and he could be charged with treason, problem solved, right? If he said yes, he would be discredited in front of the crowd and he'd give the enemies of Jesus ammo to arrest and kill him with the crowd's approval, which is important, right? Uh, because we have seen the religious leaders hesitant to arrest them because they feared the crowd. But it turns out that Jesus is a lot smarter than them, yes? What Jesus will do is turn it back on them and cause them to be discredited in front of the people. He says, let me see a denarius. Okay? So one of these guys reaches into his cloak or whatever and pulls out this denarius, and this is about a day's wage, right? But here's the thing, okay? The coin bears Caesar's image on it, and it had an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, which declared him to be son of God, right? Now, remember, they're in the temple area. Why does that matter? Because most Jews refused to carry that coin into the temple because it constituted idolatry and went, and went against the prohibition against graven images. So you have these dudes trying to trap Jesus, do you see? They're carrying around what amounts to a graven image in the temple, and he causes them to pull it out. Jesus then asks, whose image or likeness is on the coin? Right? The answer is Caesar, of course. So Jesus says what? The coin is Caesar's? Give it back to him. Right? It's common understanding throughout Rome that all coins belong to him because he's the one who minted it, and his stupid face is on it, right? What bears Caesar's image and likeness? What belongs to Caesar? This is what Jesus is saying. This coin? Okay, give it back to him. Now understand, my friend, this text is not meant to be a treatise on relation between church and state or God and government, okay? This is a lesson on what man owes God. See, we too often focus on the wrong part of this text. What is remembered most about this text? When is it often cited? To talk about the Christian's relation to the state. That's not the point of this text at all. You want to talk about that? Go to Romans 13. This is about what is owed God. And so what is owed God? Jesus says, give to Caesar what bears his image and give to God what bears his image. What bears God's image and likeness? All people. Every person bears God's image. You do, I do. Okay, so give God what bears his image. Think about that. Jesus says to give God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. So essentially Jesus says, sure, give Caesar his sad, silly little coin, and you give God, you know, everything else. Why? Because it belongs to him anyway. Jesus says, give Caesar what bears his image, give God what bears his image. All people bear God's image, including who? Caesar. Who owns Caesar? <laughs> and you see this word render? 
It carries the idea of paying back a debt. What debt do we owe to God? Do you see what he's doing? All people owe a debt to God, including Caesar. (laughs) All people are subordinate to God, including Caesar. So, my friend, if you bear the image of God and you are to render unto God what is God's, then what is it that you owe him? You bear God's image, so what is due to him? You and all that you have and all that you are. That's the answer. What bears Caesar's likeness and image? A coin, big deal. Just give it back to him. You were created for or by Caesar. You were created by God and for God. So give God what is owed to him. And what is owed to him? Everything. Del Ralph Davis said, What does it mean to pay back God, God the things that are God's except to offer him all that I am and all that I have? What does Yahweh ask of you? Well, just everything. That's all. As human beings... You bear the image and likeness of God. As a Christian, you bear the image of likeness of Christ. What then do you owe God and Christ? What then drives your life? Where ought your allegiance lie supremely? Of course, there's a problem, isn't there? We owe a debt to God so large because of our sin and rebellion that we couldn't pay it back in a thousand lifetimes of good deeds. But then there comes the Son sin of the Father. And unlike the parable, both the Father and the Son knew that the Son would be rejected and killed, and they executed their plan without any reluctancy or hesitancy. Why? So the Son, the beloved Son, the Son whom God loves, could die in your place and pay your debt in full. They knew that the cornerstone that the man rejected would rise up and be vindicated. And what should that create in us? What should that offer of grace do to our hearts? It shouldn't create presumption. It shouldn't create sloth. It shouldn't evoke us to yawn. It shouldn't make us think obedience is a chore. Our debt is paid, but what do we owe God? All that we have and all that we are. Let me close with this illustration from J.D. Greer. He said, realizing the love of God for us produces love for God in us. Imagine you arrived home one afternoon to find a friend waiting on your porch. As you unlock the door to go inside, he says, oh, while you were out, a creditor came by demanding that you pay your debt. So I paid it for you. Here it continues. How would you react to that person? If your friend had paid some undue postage on a letter, you might slap him on the back, right, and say, thanks, buddy. But if the IRS had shown up claiming you owed $900,000 in back taxes and they were there to take you to jail, but your friend paid the debt off, you'd probably fall on your face and say, command me, my Lord, because extravagant generosity compels extravagant response. Then he says, when we realize how great a debt we owe to God, we become willing servants, eager to be poured out for God and his kingdom. If we do not feel that way, we might never have truly understood the gospel. Quoting Snodgrass one more, he said, Christians today too frequently think grace can be received without effect and without response. That is impossible. Is the tepidness of our commitment to God because we have a very small sense of a huge debt forgiven. If we care about what God has done for us, gratitude, that response, and acts will be present. What about you? Will you embrace the sun, receive the cornerstone, 
live your life in light of so great and glorious and beautiful a Christ, or you'll be crushed by him in the end. Make the right choice and give Jesus everything you have and all that you are now and forever.